Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The British people have had enough of waiting. The time has come to act. People are really angry out there. They're angry that the referendum's not being carried out. But they're even angrier that politicians' promises to them have been broken. Given how huge this decision is for our country, the severe consequences there will be for generations, it is time to put this back to the people and stop this Brexit chaos. We will do everything necessary to stop a disastrous no deal. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Sebastian Solek. Well, there we go. Another court ruling, this time from Belfast, saying that uh, the uh, no Brexit would not, no deal Brexit, I should say, would not violate the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, indeed. That comes after the government, of course, lost a Scottish case yesterday over the legality of suspending Parliament. Uh, so look, uh, Seb, all of these court cases uh, from Belfast to Edinburgh to London will arrive at the Super Supreme Court next week. Yeah, so lots for the panel of judges to consolidate as we get some answers. We'll speak a little bit later on about uh, just how much of a role the court should play in this sort of thing. They've come under some fire from various uh, corners today and indeed in the past. The other big story we've got to talk about, of course, is Yellowhammer, those government papers, the worst case Brexit scenario that have been published. They were forced, of course, by Parliament to do this, the five page summary warning of food and fuel shortages, disruption to the supply chain, job losses, public disorder, intense pressure to return to the negotiating table, potential of riots here as well, and of course, as we lead up to the Christmas period. Yeah, yo-ho-ho. That's slightly worrying, isn't it? Uh, And then we have uh, got the response, of course, from the Labour Party, the Shadow Transport Secretary, Andy MacDonald. This is what he had to say. It will disrupt all aspects of our, our life and cause businesses to close, there is no doubt. So this could not be more stark. It's more akin to emergency planning for a war or for a natural disaster. Right, so natural disaster or war, says uh, the Labour uh, Shadow Transport Secretary. The Defence Secretary, uh, of course, on the Tory side, Ben Wallace, saying it's the government's job to tell people what could happen. Absolutely. We've got some great guests to come later in the show. Two for you today. We've got Jonathan Portes, the Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London. We'll talk about student visas with him. We'll talk about all of this process uh, with Brexit from a uh, constitutional side. But first, let's speak to Kirsty Blackman. She is the SNP's deputy leader in Westminster and she joins us uh, right now. Uh, so, Kirsty, what happens now for you and the SNP? What do you support going back into Parliament once we resume? Well, the most important thing for us over the past few weeks has been banding together with other opposition politicians, and actually ones from the Conservative Party as well, to do everything that we can to ensure that a no-deal Brexit doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been talking about the risks of a no-deal Brexit for some time. It's very good to actually see some of the government's documents on this and to understand that actually they also think... The, there will be food and medicine shortages and two and a half uh, day delays at the at the ports. And the other thing that was particularly telling in what the, the documents that they published was that low income groups would be disproportionately affected. And we have a major issue with inequality already 
if they're going to be hardest hit by that, then I think that's devastating for some people and communities. So Kirsty, with the risk of a no-deal Brexit, would you then take a deal if one was achieved and one was put back to Parliament? Well, we've been trying to compromise all of the way along. So when the uh, result was first announced of the referendum, um, we Scotland obviously voted overwhelmingly to remain. Uh, but the Scottish government put forward in 2016 a paper saying, if we are going to be dragged out of the European Union, we think we should do it on the basis of being in the customs union, being in the single market, and also having freedom of movement. Those are the things that we asked for, but that was just rejected out of hand. Now, if a deal comes forward that that doesn't have those things, then we'll have to look particularly careful at it. But the reality is there's no evidence that Boris Johnson is doing any negotiating just now. There's no evidence that he's bringing anything to Brussels. So the likelihood of him coming forward with a deal before the 31st of October or even before the 31st of January seems pretty slim at this point. Although, I mean... (laughs) There's still some concerns, really, about kind of the logic of of the positions of, of the SNP and, and other political parties. Is it not surely somehow dishonest to support a Brexit deal when actually you want Scotland to leave the United Kingdom because you're also in favour of, of another referendum? Oh, we are absolutely in favour of a Scottish referendum. And I think that, you know, on having looking down the road and looking at what has happened... In Westminster, Scottish people are looking on aghast, to be honest, and are thinking, actually, you know, about our right to choose our own future and the fact that Boris Johnson shouldn't be allowed untrammeled power in this way. Um, But, you know, we're absolutely clear that we believe that the best future for the United Kingdom would be to remain in the EU. We don't want Scotland to be dragged out of the EU against our will, but we also believe that the way that the referendum was done in terms of the lies that were told about what Brexit would mean was incredibly concerning. And that's why we supported a second EU referendum, so that people would have the right to choose now that they have more information. So let's assume we get a delay here. I mean, the SNP is sitting pretty nicely in the polls right now. Surely you jump at the next chance to call an election. We're absolutely eager to call a general election. And, um, you know, we, we have been very clear that looking at our polling data, that would be hugely advantageous to us. But the more important thing for us at this moment in time is to ensure that Boris Johnson cannot use this situation in order to create a no-deal Brexit. I mean, that's the thing that we've been clearest about, and that's the thing that we've put ahead of our mm. party interest in this regard, is attempting to ensure that that no-deal Brexit uh, doesn't happen. Uh, hang on a second. We are days away from Brexit. Uh, all of a sudden now, the SNP and other opposition parties gather their forces uh, to sort of prevent this as an outcome. But it's been the base case for a long time, the 31st of October. This is leaving it to the very, very last possible moment. Well, we've been working together for some time, actually. If you look at the um, Oliver Lightwin bill that went through Parliament back in um, the, the early part of this year, we were working together on that. I mean, I, I cannot overstate the amount of cross-party work that is happening in Westminster and how incredibly unusual this is. This is not a situation... We don't, do not have this level of cross-party work ever. It's certainly in my lifetime in Westminster. And it is genuinely the case that the opposition are really working together um, with those brave Conservatives who have been kicked out of the party as a result. Um, it's not an easy thing to do, to keep a cross-party group of MPs together like that. But avoiding no deal is so important that we've managed to do it.
Uh, you mentioned a moment ago that you think that Johnson is going for no deal. I'm just looking at lines from Simon Coveney, the uh, foreign minister over in Ireland, saying that he's convinced Johnson wants to get a deal. We heard from Merkel yesterday saying she'll work until the last day to secure a Brexit deal. Are you questioning their analysis of the situation? No, I'm really pleased that that is happening. But the reality is, um, you know, other other European uh, negotiators and politicians have said that there is not uh, currently deals on the table. There's not currently changes in the proposals on the table that are being discussed in, in earnest. So I doubt that Boris Johnson is very keen to work towards a deal, if you see what I mean. It may be that mm-hmm. European politicians are, but um, not so much that he is. But if you are saying we have to leave on the 31st of October, do or die, then you are setting yourself up for the possibility of a no deal. And Mm. the way that the cross-party group of MPs has come together is said, you know, if there is a deal negotiated that Parliament agrees with in advance of the um, 21st, 22nd of October, then that should be brought back to Parliament and that would not necessitate an extension any longer if Parliament passed it. Okay, um, that is one option. Uh, What about, though, uh, you know, the idea of an election? Uh, Obviously, Labour and and Conservatives have gone basically into election mode as far as anyone uh, can make out. Do you expect a no-confidence vote? Will you vote down the Queen's speech to try to effectively, you know, get get Prime Minister Johnson to resign? Um, That would be on the 14th of October. I don't think if we did vote against the Queen's speech, it would be the first time that we've done so. I'm pretty certain that we've done this before. Uh, So it wouldn't be a surprise if the SNP were to vote against a Conservative agenda, to be honest. Um, But, you know, we are looking at all of the possible options. We are looking at working together and seeing what we can do in terms of a a coalition of opposition MPs who are trying to, as I say, avoid no deal and trying to ensure that... um, if, if Brexit does happen, it is the softest possible Brexit. But, I mean, when we're standing in a general election, if we're thinking about that election coming, we will be standing on a pro-EU platform and we will be standing saying Scotland should have a right to choose our own future. So you talked about a, a, a coalition there. If Labour came knocking and they wanted to do, do a deal, would you be up for it? Would you set candidates aside in swing seats? There are lots of them. In Scotland? Yeah. Um, no, in Scotland, the the reality is that we will be looking to to win all 59 of the seats in Scotland. The most important thing, though, will be attempting to ensure that there are as few politicians supporting a no-deal elected as possible in Scotland. Mm, so, so we already have a few a few from the Conservative Party who are willing to support a no-deal. Not one of them um, went through the lobby in support of the anti-no-deal bill, uh, the, 13, the 13 Scottish Tories, not one of them su- joined our cross-party movement. Um, so we're hoping to ensure that we get rid of all of those from um, Scottish seats. OK, uh, fighting talk. Um, look, uh, the alliance then potentially, uh, you know, this this coalition that you talk about, you know, having necessitated so much work in, in Westminster when it comes to Brexit is, is going to last kind of days if we do end up with an election coming then. Well, I think things are maybe different in other parts of the UK. I've certainly heard um, the Change UK, for example, talking about not standing in Lib Dem seats. So I think things are different in other places. In in Scotland, the the SNP is the the main anti-Brexit uh, party, and we have been we've been making that case, and we've been clear and consistent since the beginning, to be honest. And I think people recognise that. So we would be, as I say, hoping to have uh, have some electoral success and hoping to come back with significantly more than the 35 that we currently have. So in 30 seconds then, if you won't do a deal with Labour per se, how do you win them over? How do you get your next referendum in Scotland? 
we've already got a mandate for a referendum in Scotland. We have a mandate that was won in 2016 that said if there was um, Scotland was dragged out of the EU against our will, we reserved the right to hold a referendum. We now have Scottish people saying that they are in favour of an independence referendum coming in terms of polling. And so, you know, it, we, we will be putting that proposition to the Scottish people at some time in the future. OK, Kirsty Blackman, thank you very much for joining us. The SNP's deputy leader in Westminster. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, Look, in the Daily Mail, I think it's uh, fascinating. Uh, The allegation really is about the judge in the case. The Daily Mail... um, effectively sort of accusing the judge of being biased uh, and you have some um, little kind of question marks and, and tidbits about the personality of the judges you know uh, one of the judges in the case in Scotland about the suspension of parliament being a jazz lover uh, uh, you know uh, and that perhaps the accusation I guess is is that uh, that they are not unbiased when it comes to Brexit so I mean this is the type of attack that we've seen in newspapers uh, previously also that, that judges are not kind of out of the political fray, you know, which usually is, is really not considered the case in the UK. No, I mean, it didn't go down particularly well, did it, in November 2016. That was after the ruling that the government had to give Parliament uh, the ability to consent to uh, the triggering of Article 50. There was that famous enemies of the people headline. Yeah. The man who wrote that, James Slack, political editor at the time, what did he become? <laughs> Spokesperson <laughs> for Theresa May, yeah. where he is till this day under Johnson. Yeah. Now, I'm looking at uh, Johnson offering Tory rebels a way back into the party. Of course, we had the uh, 20-plus rebels that were uh, dismissed, that were thrown out after the vote the other week. We've got this story in The Telegraph that uh, the Prime Minister's instructed the Chief Whip to write to all those MPs, setting out the appeals process to restore the whip. So that's been called by some as a ray of light for rebels, an olive branch, perhaps. And it goes ahead to this uh, this vote on uh, Northern Ireland, a deal on Northern Ireland. He'd need all of that support to get that through the commons so it's sort of a a case of this is coming back to bite him he's going to need those numbers he's got to find a way to get those back in the question then is will they accept this some of them have said we're done yeah an olive branch uh, proffered at least after the kind of uh, hard charging debut uh, to Mr Johnson's tenure at number 10 Uh, and I just want to point out uh, Therese Raphael on the Bloomberg terminal of course talking about the Queen getting dragged into the Brexit quagmire as Therese calls it Uh, she was writing up uh, the judgment uh, yesterday by the uh, three Scottish uh, judges there. Uh, She's saying that actually as far as she's concerned that Queen Elizabeth II of course has stayed largely out uh, of these Brexit matters, but that it will be much harder for her to do now. I mean, we shall see uh, is my sort of question mark because the Queen is, is has usually and her advisors have been, you know, quite firm in holding that line under very difficult circumstances. Yeah, I mean, the big takeaway from the last few weeks is just how much bigger than Brexit all of this is. Every aspect of the Constitution is getting tested, whether it's conventions around the monarchy or it's the separation of powers or yep. judicial review. All of that is coming into focus. And actually, in a way, it's a good thing because people are seeing all of these aspects of the Constitution at work. They get the, the opportunity mm. to 
to make up their own mind. Okay, I, I frown because <laughs> I wonder whether you know a, a vast majority of the voting pub, public uh, understands all of these mechanisms. I'm not sure whether I understand them all of the time. Uh, so yes, the, the question marks uh, are there. Look, joining us uh, now is Jonathan Porters, who is a professor of economics and public policy at King's College London and senior fellow at the UK in a changing Europe. So a man who definitely does know the details of the story. A very good morning to Jonathan. Good morning. Um, so look, we're, we're talking about this idea around the politicisation of courts. Um, you know, usually uh, there is real separation between the legal system in, in, in the UK. Certainly we have a different system to the United States. Um, do you think that courts now are becoming sort of politicised. Certainly the business minister, Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, came under severe fire for saying that courts getting involved in politics to the detriment of both politics and the courts. He was saying that people are saying that. that. So he was sort of reporting what other people were saying. But, but uh, you know, he was accused of kind of, uh, of uh, yes, yeah, saying something that, that I guess is not, not true. What is your view? Um, well, I think it is pretty irresponsible. What he said was clearly pretty irresponsible and does undermine uh, the independence of the court. So to the extent there's a problem, he is certainly doing his best to make it worse. And uh, um, I think he has been rightly criticized on all sides. But on the bigger picture, um, yes, there's no doubt that court the, the um, courts uh, here are being politicized in the sense of they are being asked to make decisions which have significant political impacts doesn't mean the judges themselves are politically Mm. biased in any way. And I don't think anybody uh, who knows anything about how British judges work or how the court system works believes that. Um, And I think the fact that the Daily Mail um, was reduced in order to demonstrate that the Scottish judges were politically biased. The Daily Mail came up with things like, well, one of them likes jazz. Another yeah. one of them um, seems to uh, think that uh, France is quite a nice country. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously absurd. And, and uh, the Daily Mail just brings itself further into disrepute on this question. But the serious point is, yes, uh, we are um, being, you know, the, the courts are being forced to intervene, not be in a politically biased way, but they are being forced to make decisions on intensely political questions um, because of the strains that the Brexit process has put on our unwritten constitution mm. um, in the sense that we used to have um, a yeah. system where, where people sort of followed the rules even though the rules weren't written down, and hence it wasn't necessary for the courts to get involved. And to some extent... Both sides in this debate, the Brexit side um, on the government side, and especially Boris Johnson, and then the Remain side, in, and the Speaker to some extent, in testing the limits of what mm-hmm. Parliament can do, um, have, uh, have, have pushed the boundaries of that unwritten constitution, and that has meant that uh, um, the, the, mm. the courts have had to get involved. And I don't think that yeah, is yeah. the fault of the courts. That's what happens when uh, the, uh, a system which has worked reasonably well for Jonathan, history breaks down. Uh, Jonathan, is there another example then that you can think of? Because we're talking basically about the erosion of institutions. And it's, yeah. I guess it's a, a theme not just in the UK, but in other yeah. you know, political um, uh, nations given populism, I suppose. Is there another example of this in the past that, that one could draw on? 
Well, I mean, I think as, as uh, Robert Saunders has, has pointed out, um, the, um, possibly the, the nearest and a much worse example was in the, uh, the and, and uh, Ireland plays a big role here as well, was in the controversy over Irish home rule mm. in the 1912 to 1914 period, when the then conservative leader, um, um, Boner Law, um, actually, in effect, called for an, said that if the Home Rule Bill proposed by the then Liberal government was passed, that an armed uprising against the government would effectively be legitimate. Um, so we have had, uh, and it's interesting to note that there was a Conservative pro- politician again, um, uh, you yeah. know, the, 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 that sometimes uh, they, they, politicians don't respect uh, the constitutional or democratic boundaries, and, and clearly we're not in that situation yet by any means. So if that's any comfort, we have had worse worse examples in the past. So, Jonathan, you talk about institutions coming under strain. Do we need to codify our constitution? Is it finally time? I think, you know, that is a question which um, British uh, um, po- uh, you know, political scientists and constitutional lawyers have been arguing about for, for decades. Um, I certainly think uh, that there is a case uh, for saying, you know, uh, whether we codify it or not, that, that we can't go on like this. Um, the idea that, um, you know, as the government is implicitly arguing here, that it would be legal for Boris Johnson to suspend Parliament for five years, that is to say, because what the government's arguing now on the prorogation case is that, you know, there, that, that, it's simply up to Boris Johnson to tell the Queen that he wants to prorogue Parliament and the Queen has to do it and the courts can't get involved at all um, without saying which way the courts will go on this particular case. Implicitly, that means he could suspend Parliament for five years if he wanted to, and that clearly is not acceptable. And nobody would ever think that no. that was acceptable. Yeah. Um, so you do have to have some rules, and if they're not... If the unwritten rules are no longer binding people, and, and uh, Boris Johnson is certainly at the very best... Uh, pushing the boundaries well beyond what previous prime ministers have done, yeah. uh, then there is certainly a good, you know, something has to change. I think there's a clear case for that. What about Ireland? You've said that a Northern Ireland only backstop or a whole of Ireland backstop is gibberish. Uh, what's your solution? <laughs> um, well, no, I said that what the Daily Telegraph was talking about simply didn't make sense because they seem to be talking about a Northern Ireland backstop but it wouldn't be a Northern Ireland backstop, and there would be checks at the borders, but there wouldn't really be checks. So I'm not, I think the Telegraph uh, you know, political correspondent was, uh, uh, was mangling what the, uh, um, the excellent Telegraph Europe correspondent, Peter Foster, had said, which was essentially that the um, UK government proposals at the moment don't add up to anything that would remotely suffice to, uh, to eliminate the need for a hard border. And so as yet... The UK government hasn't really put any serious alternative to the backstop on the table yet. And Jonathan, very quickly, I just want to ask you about foreign students and visas. You've been writing about that quite a lot. We had that announcement yesterday. Uh, I was looking at the stats today. Almost a quarter of foreign students are Chinese, and the aim is to increase more uh, participation from foreign students. Is this policy encouraged more from further away than from our closest neighbours, and is that a, a good thing? Well, I mean, if you want, uh, um, and particularly in the aftermath of Brexit, when EU students won't have the, quite the same privileged position that they do now, 
the UK higher education sector needs to be a global industry, and that means attracting people both from Europe but also from uh, the, the big growth markets for foreign students, which is China and India, and that's yep. entirely a good thing. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. That's Jonathan Portes, who is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London. Thank you. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.